a biologist, a lawyer, and a minister all walk into a podcast. And what results is some lively debate about theological topics of secondary significance. So, thanks for taking time to listen. Just briefly, since this is the first episode, I was hoping that we could all introduce ourselves in about 30 seconds each. So I'll start. My name is Jay Salloway. I'm a developmental biologist who is just wrapping up his PhD in genetics and epigenetics. I was raised in the Stone Campbell restoration movement. So as such, I have a lot of love for scripture over doctrine. Sometimes I think we get it right. Sometimes I think we get it wrong. So we're bringing these ideas here to bash them together. And hopefully God lets iron sharpen iron so that we can get closer to understanding what God has given us. Um, I'm here joined I'm here joining Brad and Jordan. So Brad, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thanks, Chase. Hi everyone, my name is Brad Hinkleman. I am a patent attorney by day, and by night I moonlight as a first year seminary student. Uh, doctrinally speaking, I grew up grew up in the Church of Christ, which I still have a lot of respect for, but I've spent some time since then at Baptist and non-denominational churches, and so depending on the issue, I might sound more like a COC person on some things more like a Baptist on some things, and more like a non-denominational or diet Baptist, as I like to say, on some other things. Uh, but in any case, this issue is the one where I don't sound like any of those things, but it's where I think that uh, that scripture has led me. So I'm really curious to hear Jordan's thoughts and to get to talk through this all. All right, and that does leave us Jordan, so go ahead. All right. Uh, hi, my name is Jordan, and I work as a youth minister in a Church of Christ. So, and that is actually my background. I grew up in the in the Stone Campbell and the Church of Christ movement, um, and I have studied a lot from that. And that is the background that I have developed from. But it's also uh, not only has it influenced a lot of my views, but it's allowed me to um, really grow to understand and appreciate the views that I grew up with. And so, uh, that is the perspective that I I am. I, I come from, and generally speaking, that's probably the perspective that just about anybody's going to hear from me. Um, but I do, um, uh, in this particular situation, I will probably be taking what is seen as the most traditional viewpoint on this perspective. And uh, I, I think that's probably where I'm going to land on a lot of these debates is the landing in the more traditional view. I will say um, in some of these debates to just moving on, not every debate that we do uh, are we going to take the perspective that we necessarily 100% agree with? But it's important to have these conversations to really flesh out the arguments on each, on each side. Uh, in this case, I do hold the the views that I'll be presenting today, and I will gladly affirm that to, to anybody else. And I think, uh, and and you know, I think that that's important that you know, people understand where I'm coming from on the front end. All right, thanks. So it sounds like today we're going to have a teacher of God versus a teacher of the law. Clearly in the Gospels, Jesus was a big fan of both of you. Um, yes, my, the lawyers are always in the right, morally. And it's every time. So today we're going to be discussing hell. We're going to be making some assumptions going into this conversation. Uh, we're assuming that the Bible is the inspired word of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as Paul says. Uh, we're assuming that not everyone is going to heaven, although we strive to bring as many people to Christ as we can while we, while we are here on earth. And lastly, we're assuming that when we dive into scripture and make space for God, he's going to use the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth. And we pray that through our conversations and your own additional study beyond this, you can hopefully see more clearly too. Um, so about hell, there's two main sides to this argument. Annihilationism is the belief that people in hell will eventually cease to exist altogether, whereas ECT, or eternal conscious torment, does not. 
the way we structure these debates is that each person was assigned one side of the topic to research and defend. The position assigned does not necessarily does not necessarily reflect that person's views, either partially or in their entirety. This is just a way for us to communicate to and to fairly assess multiple sides to an argument and to dig into scripture to find out what God said about it. That being said, each person is going to attempt to persuade you, the audience, that their position is the right one. It's up to you to think critically and fairly about the arguments presented and to then go and do study of your own. Each person is going to be given 15 minutes to make their opening statement. Then there will be a 10-minute rebuttal time allotted for each person. After that, each person will be allowed 10 minutes to cross-examine their opponent. And then lastly, there will be another 10-minute section where they can each give a closing argument. Each section will follow the same order of presenter. So person one in this case will be Brad, person two will be Jordan, except for the closing argument, in which case it will be flipped, in which case Jordan will give the first closing, Brad will give the second closing. My job is going to be to keep track of time, so I'm going to let each speaker know when their time is up. I'm also going to give you guys a um, one-minute warning for each section. If you choose to go over your time, I'm going to instead dock double that allotment from the next section. And for the closing arguments, when time is up, you'll be allowed to finish your current sentence, and then you're done. It would be really nice if our political debates were held like this today. So, without further ado, uh, I would like to welcome Brad. Can I make one small yeah. comment before we continue? Uh, you mentioned that there are two perspectives to this debate. I just wanted to mention universalists, you exist as well. Oh, okay, um, sorry. We mean no disrespect, <laughs> but uh, th these are the two that we're going to be talking and about. And I guess I think I was thinking under the assumptions previously listed, there's ma two main. That's views, a very good yes. point. I'm sure yes. there are plenty of nuances here and there and different variations within it. So, yeah. Um, so, we're going to be looking just at annihilationism <laughs> versus ECT. Hey, they feel like they're universally Excellent. accepted in this too. Um, so, uh, Brad, your 15 minutes times is going to start now. Thanks, Jace. So the first thing I want to do is I want to thank Jordan very much for taking the time to speak with me about this. I know Jordan very well personally, and I know him to be a man of great faith, someone who knows the Bible brilliantly well, and who takes the scripture seriously. And so I'm just really grateful that he's agreed to take the time to speak with me about something this important. Uh, I understand, of course, that I'm representing the minority view today, annihilationism, so my goal is to help those listening who maybe don't know a lot about annihilationism to better understand it. Even if I can't change your mind today, if I can help you get a better understanding of some of the key passages that influence your, your belief, uh, whether that be ECT or annihilationism, I'll be very happy with that result. You can always accuse me or my debate partner, Jordan, of misinterpreting the text or just being wrong, but please don't accuse either of us of not striving to the truth to the best of our ability. At the risk of oversimplifying this subject, I think the traditional view, that is ECT or eternal conscious torment, this idea that people suffer in hell for all eternity, I think that view requires you to take the literal passages of scripture as figurative and the figurative passages as a literal. That is, it flips on its head traditional modes of biblical interpretation. And on top of that, I think the only way to get to the traditional view is to not fully take into account the Old Testament passages that are quoted and cited when these things are talked about in the New Testament. But we'll flesh all that as we go, and we'll see if I can support those claims. So first off, what is annihilationism or conditional immortality? Essentially, it's the view that when the Bible says that the wicked will be killed or destroyed, consumed, undergo the second death, perish, burn like chaff, anything like that, that it means what it says. Rather than believing that people suffer in hell for all eternity, we annihilationists think that after a time in hell, people are destroyed and they no longer exist consciously. 
with we agree with proponents of VCT that the lost are resurrected, judged, and cast into a lake of fire of unimaginable pain. Really, the whole eschatological process up until the last point is fully agreed. The only point of disagreement is whether they stay, stay consciously alive in that lake of fire, symbolic or literal, for all time, or whether they are eventually destroyed. I'm not alone in thinking that unsaved people are eventually annihilated. A growing number of notable biblical scholars like Edward Fudge, Clark Pinnock, John Stott, John Wenham, and Philip Hughes have become annihilationists in recent days, and many argue that it was the prevailing view among church fathers before Augustine. At the very least, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Arnobius of Sicca, and Athanasius have comments that very much make them seem as though they were annihilationists. They believe that the soul of man was inherently mortal, and that only by God's grace could man live forever. Conversely, they thought this idea of unconditional immortality, or the view that humans lived forever regardless of whether they went to heaven or hell, found its roots not in the Bible, but in Plato's writings in ancient Greece. Of course, Plato had a lot to say about his view of the immortality of the soul. It's also important to note that annihilationism is the official doctrine of the Anglican Church, hashtag not sponsored by Anglicanism. Uh, I'm not an Anglican, but my point is that I didn't just pick this doctrine up off the street. It's a view that's popular within mainstream Protestant Christianity, and it should be taken seriously as such. So, the only important question of the night, in my view, what does the Bible have to say about this? First off, it says that we need God's grace to have eternal life, that people don't just live forever without being sustained by God. Starting in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, through 24, God says, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So my question for anyone listening right now who maybe supports the traditional view is what did the tree of life do if Adam's soul was already immortal, if Adam was going to live forever either way, if the only question for Adam was whether that he had a pleasurable eternity or an unpleasurable one separated from God, was the tree of life the tree of not being separated from God or was it preserving his life? And in addition to that, just to word it a different way, did God warn Adam that if he ate of the other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that he would be eternally tormented or that he would surely die? Of course, he said the latter, and I think when in doubt, we should take God's words at face value. In addition, uh, John 3.16, everyone knows this verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is really common here, where there's a juxtaposition between perishing or dying or being destroyed on one side and having eternal life in the, on the other side, rather than the much less common framing of eternal pleasure or eternal pain, which that exact wording is never used in scripture. First uh, Corinthians 15.50, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, which strongly implies that there is a class of humans who are perishable. First uh, Timothy 6.16, Christ alone has immortality. And Hebrews 10.39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And many, many more verses on this point. Uh, I want to point out here that there are about 260 four verses on this subject, according to a study by John Wenham. And of those 264, according to Wenham studies, 263 of them support my view. Uh, now, of course, I'm not going to be able to touch on all over 200 of these verses. So for each of these ideas that I point out today, I want you to be aware that I'm providing a small sampling of what the Bible says, and we're going to provide some resources in the discussion afterwards that can maybe point you to dig a little bit deeper. In any case, in addition to what I previously said, the Bible teaches that sin leads to death. Romans 6.23, everyone knows this one, so read it with me. For the wages of sin 
is eternal conscious torment. Just kidding, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. And James 1.15, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Now, I understand that maybe the traditionalists who are listening or my debate partner Jordan hearing this are ready to jump out of their chairs because they're saying, we know that the lost will die. We believe that they go to the second death. We just think that when it says that, it doesn't mean they literally will die a second time, but that they will be in no kind of life, that, that it's a life that's much less pleasurable, a life of pain, a life separated from God. And so in that way, the Bible is sort of figuratively referring it to it as death. My point today is that if the Bible says this 264 times in different ways each time, that perhaps at some point when it says perish, consume, destroy, turn to ash, uh, condemned to extinction, brought to nothing, at some point we should take it at face value. And hopefully I can demonstrate that today. The Bible further says that the unsaved will, in fact, perish, be consumed, and be destroyed. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So according to Jesus Christ, what can happen in hell? God can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in the context here, he's telling the apostles not to be afraid of a very literal physical death. And so in the same way, if the body of death, if, or in the, if the act of the death of the body is a literal death in the first half of that verse. Then in the second half, when he says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, it only stands to reason he's talking about the same kind of literal death. Psalm 1-6, the way of the wicked will perish. And Isaiah one twenty eight, rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. The Bible goes on to give tons of creative imagery showing the extent to which the lost are reduced to nothing. And so I'm going to do sort of a blitz round here where I go through a bunch of these verses. And my point isn't to beat a dead horse. My point is, again, if you can see the multitude of ways the Bible is telling us this, and you're telling me we have to read around all of them, and then they're not referring to literal death, literal annihilation, literal destruction, but an internal destruction where they're never actually destroyed, as oxymoronic as that is, uh, perhaps there's a point to be made here. So let's go through them. Psalm 1-4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Psalm 2-9, the Lord shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. Psalm 37-20, they vanish like smoke they vanish away. Psalm 58-8, like the snail that dissolves into slime, this, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Psalm 68-2, as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Psalm 73-20, like a dream when one awakens. Isaiah 33-12, like thorns cut down, they are burned in the fire. Malachi 4, 1 through 3, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. And it goes on to say, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. And Matthew 3, 12, the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. And this is a really important point here as well, because the scripture talks about this unquenchable fire or eternal fire many times. And in several of the places that it's talked about, we know for certain that it is not describing a fire that literally burned with no end. For example, we'll talk about the example in Jude of Sodom and Gomorrah's fire, which was described as an eternal fire. And we know, factually speaking, that it's not still on fire. And so when the Bible says this unquenchable fire, it's referring to a fire that can't be that the person in it is burning and burning, and they can't stop that burning process. Not that the fire is literally going to continue after they've been totally burned, because there would be no point to that. Having said that, even if you disagree with me and take what I think to be a somewhat strenuous interpretation of the text, that this is a literal eternal fire, if a mortal fire can kill people, 
How much more could an immortal fire cause you to die, one that God is using to destroy your soul and body in hell? I would think that fire would be one that would be even more successful in causing a person to end. To that point, the Bible teaches that there are dead bodies in hell, which is very contrary to the traditional view. Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men, same word in Hebrew as corpses of the men, who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now we know, of course, that this is hell that's being talked about, because in Mark 9, 47 to 48, Jesus says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, quote, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And I think this is perhaps the most instructive verse on this topic in the entirety of scripture. Perhaps not the strongest for annihilationism. I think it does support us very clearly, but it's definitely the most instructive because you'll see many who read this verse under the traditional view will say, look, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If the worms live in forever and the fires live in forever, then the persons live in forever. It just makes sense. But the problem with that reading is if you understand that Jesus is quoting directly, verbatim in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from Isaiah 66, 24, you don't even have to go back to the previous verse. In the same verse he's quoting, it says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies, the corpses of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. It is dead bodies that are the subject of these immortal fireworms in Isaiah's vision, not literal conscious human beings who are still animates. The Bible further teaches that Sodom, Gomorrah, Edom, and the flood are all examples of hell. And I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that I think that they're good examples. I'm saying that Jude and Peter and Luke point to these temporal events that led to utter, absolute, literal destruction and say those are examples of what will happen to the ungodly. Luke, or sorry, Jude 1.7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, we know geographically where Sodom and Gomorrah are. You can go take a field trip over there if you like, and you can go see that they're not still literally burning. Instead, this is a Hebraism or a Hebrew idiom, a Hebrew figure of speech, where they use eternal sounding wording to denote an event that utterly destroyed someone, that was absolutely permanent in its destruction. And we know, of course, this isn't really an interpretation so much as just a fact. Because Sodom and Gomorrah is not still on fire, you would have to deny the inerrancy of Scripture to say that eternal fire describes a fire that continues to burn forever. In addition, 2 Peter 2, 5 through 6 says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So according to Peter, what is going to happen to the ungodly? Like Sodom and Gomorrah, they will be turned to ashes and condemned to extinction. I cannot think of more annihilationist wording than what Peter gave us as imbued by the Holy Spirit. Luke 17, 25 through 27 goes on to give another parallel to the flood and to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Isaiah 34, 9 through 10 talks about the destruction of Edom. It says, and the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall be become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever 
and ever. And just understand here, we know again where Edom is. They made the Petra, very cool, you can go visit. It's not still smoking, even though it says its smoke shall go up forever and ever. It's another Hebrew idiom that would have been understood by the readers of its time to mean that they would be absolutely destroyed as they were when Isaiah's prophecy came true. To summarize, eternal conscious torment is a product of a Christian culture that does not read and understand its Old Testament sufficiently. Each of the examples each of the examples that my debate partner will give, whether it's eternal fire, eternal worms, or eternal smoke, will affirm annihilationism rather than ECT when read in its Old Testament context. Many early church fathers and modern Bible scholars agree that the hundreds of verses that describe those in hell as being destroyed, killed, dying, perishing, being consumed, and undergoing the second death mean what they say. God gave us Sodom, Gomorrah, Edom, and the flood as examples of the judgment to come, a judgment that will be dramatic and unpleasant for the unsaved, but will ultimately end in their annihilation. My debate partner will likely hone in on a few verses taken out of their Old Testament context to support this idea that people suffer in hell eternally, but by the time we finish cross-examination, I hope to have demonstrated that those verses would not have been understood by the original readers to describe eternal torment. In any event, they cannot override the consistent message of the rest of Scripture that eternal life can only be had through Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Fifteen minutes on the dot. I am really impressed. Wow. All right, Jordan, are you prepared for your opening statement? I am. Okay. Thank you for your time, Brad. And let's turn our attention to Jordan to hear what he has to say to open up about ECT. Jordan, your time begins now. Well, once again, I want to thank Brad for the time that we have to, to have this debate and to really, really dive deep into this discussion. I know Brad has a fervency for understanding scripture and the deepest parts of it uh, and to know it fully. And so I appreciate the amount of time and effort he has put into this view. I by no means believe that his view comes from a place of uh, ignorance or or a place that is uh, meant to be uh, maybe a, a less efficient view of scripture but more specifically i do believe that this view does come from some certain modern interpretations and modern philosophies that do inherently seep into uh, our view and and perhaps even our hermeneutics when it comes to viewing scripture. However, there are several aspects in which ECT has established itself as the dominant view for centuries. And there is a reason that it has been the orthodox and traditional view for centuries. You may hear me say this in other debates. I don't necessarily always agree with the traditional view of things, but generally speaking, traditional views are traditional for a reason. Uh, there tested time and time again throughout the centuries, and oftentimes they will come up as being well-founded and well-established, uh, even if sometimes those understandings eventually are lost to time, uh, I hope today to lay out a solid argument that puts forth a, a good foundation for why this has been the traditional and orthodox view over the years. Uh, of course, uh, as I stated before, I do believe that annihilationism comes from a, a place that is completely um, well-intentioned and it is in no way, I believe, uh, heretical. Um, I do believe, though, that it's inconsistent with uh, a, a real in-depth um, hermeneutical reading uh, of the text as it was meant to be understood. 
And so with that being said, I'm going to jump a little bit into the linguistic arguments of why this uh, view has, has held for so long. Um, a lot of the scriptures, and uh, Brad cited that there are several hundred scriptures that um, he would claim support his viewpoint. Uh, I would put a little bit of an asterisk next to that because I do believe that there are several that uh, could, if read in a certain context or read with a certain presupposition. But many of those same verses, I was, as we determined from the verse in Isaiah, which Jesus also quotes in Mark, is a verse that if you decide to take a particular stance on or decide to read from a particular perspective, uh, could easily be read to enforce either viewpoint. Uh, and so I want to preface by saying that any of these viewpoints uh, do have to be read in the context which they were originally intended to be read in order to be properly understood. Um, talking about the wording of, of these phrases, the word eternal destruction is the, the term that I think is at the crux of most of these. And while there are some other verses that describe things very figuratively um, and some, some things that make some descriptions of this eternal destruction, I do believe that uh, it's important for us to understand the language of what we're speaking of. I do believe that my opponent has a very clearly stated that there is no question on whether or not the nature of hell is eternal. And of course, the Greek word here, aeonion, would be the word that's used to describe eternal. This word, to, to debase any of the uh, those who believe that hell itself is temporary, um, it, or, it indicates this idea that something is everlasting, ongoing, uh, and that things will not end. Um, this word specifically, unless otherwise, uh, unless context dictates otherwise, uh, the word aeonion always means something is eternal, perpetual, or forever. Um, there is, among scholarship, a consensus that that is the reading of it, unless the context would dictate otherwise, and context, context seldom, if ever, dictates otherwise. So that's that part of, of that phrase in the Greek is probably not something that we need to dive too deeply into from the linguistic perspective. But Colossus is the word that really we would have to uh, analyze here is that's the, the Greek word here that is translated as destruction. Now, that Greek word and it is used in the in the Septuagint when we are quoting from some of these Old Testament passages, even specifically the one in uh, Isaiah in question here, uh, that particular word, it is translated a number of different ways, and it is translated with um, some specificity uh, depending on the context, um, and that is kind of the difficulty is garnering some of the context. But this word Colossus often refers to those things which are uh, facing some kind of punitive or some kind of uh, um, punishment, some some payment, some uh, something to do with uh, a punitive um, recourse. And so, in this case, if we're talking about this word Colossus and its its reference to these punitive things, that destruction would not necessarily mean something that would bring uh, necessary. We're not talking necessarily about something's um, disassembly or dissemination, but rather that this is specifically the cause or the payment for uh, that which is uh, which is done. And I believe my my opponent would agree with that. 
um, this is meant to be a punitive word, uh, that this word is meant to be, uh, to refer to that payment, which, which, which must be made. And of course, as you, as you quoted in uh, Romans chapter three, the wages of sin is death. And so in this case, death would be that punitive. However, I'll get into this in a little bit, but specifically this word being punitive is significant because it would point out that if death was what awaited all of us, that that's not necessarily meant to be a punishment. Uh, I'll get more into that as we continue on. Uh, but Colossus and Ionion are the words that often are, are brought up in this debate. From a linguistic perspective, the question becomes, is hell eternal or is, is hell eternal in the sense that hell continues on and we experience it forever and our experience with hell is forever? Or is the nature of the punishment of hell what is eternal? And that's really where this debate turns to. Uh, and it becomes really a debate over semantics when you get into the nitty gritty. Um, my argument would be that our experience of hell is what is eternal. Uh, I believe that my opponent, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, would argue that, in fact, it is the nature of hell which is eternal and our experience is not. Um, I believe that those two things would be inconsistent with one another, though. I believe it's, it's hard to declare that hell itself is everlasting, but our experience with it is eternal uh, when we are told specifically by Christ that it is we who will experience that eternal judgment. Um, I'll come back to that as well in a moment. Let's, let me move on to just a few of the scriptures that we have to kind of address some of these issues. While there are a few scriptures, as Brad pointed out, that those in the annihilationist camp might use and say, look, this points to a clear indication of annihilationism, many of these verses are once again pulled out of context as some of them do not refer specifically to hell. Uh, some of them are meant to simply refer to the destruction of the enemies of God or those who speak out against God. And in many cases, especially in the Old Testament, God is indicating that he is going to bring a literal physical destruction to those people. Now, I given, not every single instance of that is the case. And as Brad pointed out, not all of them are. He brought up some really great points that some of these were meant to bring a, an eternal destruction on these people, not just a, an immediate, literal, physical destruction. Uh, and I do believe that God's judgment is indicated in the Old Testament to be final. Now, it's important that we understand what it is that God is saying when, when he's saying these things in the Old Testament and what he is not saying. He is saying that his judgment is going to come and it is going to last forever. Christ affirms that that judgment lasts forever and he even uses those examples and so do the new testament writers that christ or that god's judgment rather is eternal in nature however we're referring to those individuals who have been destroyed in a mortal and physical sense which i do believe is where uh this argument tends to take a turn because the annihilationist camp tends to take a very literal and physical and material view of these scriptures to talk about death. You would have to, in order to, to assume some of these verses translate the way that they do, to come to an annihilationist perspective. This material view, which would indicate that we would have to recognize this as a physical death, a material death, makes things incredibly difficult when you start to read other parts of scripture. And even when we talk about uh, eschatology, uh, we would have to assume that 
all eschatology should be referred to in a physical and material sense. And of course, we understand fully that that couldn't possibly be the case. Uh, we do understand that there are aspects of eschatology and even scripture that we know are not going to be taken literally. Uh, and so in this case, as we're talking about this death and this, this uh, destruction that occurs, uh, we have to ask ourselves, is this destruction a material destruction or is this a spiritual destruction? Uh, the destruction that happens spiritually does not necessarily mean that it is going to annihilate or uh, cause a cessation of the existence of that soul, but rather, in some sense, it will cause a, a cessation of that soul's uh, purpose, of the soul's light. Uh, but in all contexts, it would still lead to an idea that the soul is experiencing this punitive destruction. Uh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, many of the time when we read scripture and we read about the judgment that occurs, even in some of the verses that Brad himself pointed out, these verses talk about and focus on without talking about the, if we, if we move out and zoom out to the broader context of these verses, um, not just about their eventual end, but more specifically focusing on the seriousness of their uh of of their destruction how incredibly painful it is how destructive it is how uh terrifying it is and so as we read some of those verses it's important to keep in mind the context that there is a focus on how incredibly damaging uh, and how dangerous and, and terrifying the judgment of god is and in that in that sense moving on though uh there are several other verses that I believe really point to an, an ECT perspective. Um, we read about Satan in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, specifically that it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, now, of course, this is obviously meant to be perpetual and this is saying that they will be tormented. Now, many would say in this case that the devil and his angels, they get special treatment because they're not like us. But there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate to us that that distinction should be made. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the difficulty, is that death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, death is destroyed. And if that is the case, we really have a problem when we come to annihilationism, because how can death occur if God functionally ends death? Um, verses, Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 through 42 also, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out uh, of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Upon destruction, I don't believe that there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, of course, there are some other verses that we can mention. Um, at the end of Matthew chapter 25, we read about Jesus saying uh, that there's going to be a separation in the, in the end times, that some will go into eternal punishment and some will go to eternal destruction. Now, my personal belief is that he's actually quoting Daniel when he says this, Daniel chapter 12, uh, because Daniel says this exact same thing at the end of his own letter. Uh, that according to what he has seen, some will go into eternal 
life and some will go into eternal punishment. Uh, and so when Jesus says this, he is really pulling up on the same context that really uh, Daniel was using in the Old Testament. So this is not, again, a new concept, but it's one that Jesus spends a lot of time teaching about and pretty well, uh, pretty well uh, confirms. Um, since I am coming low on time, um, I do want to address very briefly the fact that this is historically the view that has been held. And you, missed, you mentioned Ignatius, uh, which is interesting because I believe that if you read most of Ignatius's writings, you find that he more than once uh, refers to things in a context that would indicate uh, eternal conscious torment. Um, not only him, but uh, Arrhenius, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian, all of these are individuals who constantly, time and time and time again, confirm and affirm this view of eternal conscious torment, which is why when Augustine uh, begins to push for it to become the orthodox doctrine, there is relatively little uh, push back on that, on that uh, viewpoint. And so based on all of this historical information, based on all the scripture and based on what I believe to be a, a solid philosophical argument, that is, uh, sorry, give me just one second. Based on all of that and the philosophical arguments to go along with it, I believe that there's a really clear picture and a clear indication of why this has been the orthodox view for so long. All right, Jordan, thank you for your um, thoughts on this and for your opening statements. Um, we're going to have 10 minutes for each of you to give a rebuttal to your opponent's arguments. So we're going to start with Brad's 10-minute rebuttal time to respond to Jordan's position on ECT. Brad, are you ready? Yes. Okay, let me write something down real quick. Um, okay, Brad, your time begins now. Thanks, Chase. Uh, so my opponent made a lot of really interesting, really Bible-birthed points, and I want to make sure to address all of those, so I'm going to have to move kind of quickly to get those all in in 10 minutes. Uh, so first, he mentioned that the traditional view uh, was such for a reason, typically. Uh, my only point here is I know that my debate partner would not feel that way about things like infant baptism, prayer to the saints, veneration of Mary, and so on and so forth. He himself said that this is a generalization and not a rule that's always correct. And so this is one example, in my opinion, of a tradition that, like he said, really caught steam with Augustine uh, and was not quite so widespread before that point. And as such, it's more or less a product of the growing and formalizing of the Catholic Church more so than something that was existing in the early church. And for that reason, I don't have much hesitation in, uh, in at least looking at alternatives to it. Um, he also, uh, oh, I wanted to also point out here that in terms of the first, of first century, you know, second temple Judaism here, the context in which the New Testament was written, the Sadducees and the Essenes were certainly <laughs> annihilationist more so than proponents of ECT. And the Essenes even used phrases like eternal destruction and eternal punishment to describe a destruction that was permanent and a punishment that was permanent, not one that is experienced literally forever. And so when we see those phrases in the New Testament, I think we should read them consider consistently with extant literature of the time. Uh, in any case, uh, my debate partner did say that eternal destruction is the core of this argument. Uh, he also mentioned eternal punishment. These are uh, Ionios or Ionion, followed by for destruction, it is this word Apollumai, and for uh, punishment, it is Colossus. 
Uh, according to Second Maccabees 438, this word Colossus, like my debate partner said, is in fact punitive, but it can refer to the death sentence, as it does in Second Maccabees 438. I want to make it clear when I'm pointing out extant literature like that of the Essenes, like that in Maccabees, I'm not saying they're inspired, but I am saying they were speaking the same language as the New Testament authors. And so if they can use Colossus to mean a death sentence, then most likely the same reading can be had in the New Testament. Uh, in any event, uh, this word Ionios that's used to modify punishment and destruction in Matthew 25, 46, and in Second Thessalonians 1, 9, is, like I said, Ionios, or its root Ion. It has a, re a Hebrew counterpart, Olam, that in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament, uh, in, for both Ion and Olam and their various forms, they very commonly refer to things that come to an end. Uh, the sprinkling of bread of the blood of the Passover, the fire at Sodom, the Aaronic priesthood, Caleb's inheritance, Solomon's temple, which Solomon's temple was destroyed twice, <laughs> although the second one wasn't his, uh, the period of a slave's life, Gehazi's leprosy, and practically every other ordinance, rite, or institution of the Old Testament system is described as Ionios, despite the fact they didn't literally last forever. I agree with my debate partner that eternal is a decent translation of them insofar as they relate to eternity in some way, perhaps in the repercussion or the nature of the thing, but I don't think that we can read it as something that goes on forever, because if we're doing that, we're saying the scriptures are wrong. <laughs> At least if we say it always means that, uh, which I would hope my debate partner wouldn't say that it always has that meaning. Uh, specifically in the context of Ionius modifying a verbal noun or an event, like, for example, there are only a few examples of this in the New Testament, but eternal destruction, eternal punishment, eternal uh, salvation, eternal judgment, and eternal uh, redemption. For each of those, I think the proper reading is that it describes an event that happened at a time and that had an eternal result. And so as an example of that, you would say that, I think my department would agree, that Christ, when it says eternal salvation, it means Christ saved at a time, and we are eternally saved as a result. Eternal judgment. On judgment day, God will judge for a time, and we are eternally judged as a result. And with redemption, Christ redeemed at a time, and we are eternally redeemed at its, uh, as a result. That one's the most interesting, because it has the same S-I-S ending, the same word form as Colossus uh, for eternal redemption. So it's really difficult to read those separately. And if you're going to say that eternal punishment relates to an ongoing event of, of, of punishing, you have to then fit into your theology that eternal redemption refers to Christ redeeming for all of time, and that his work is not, in fact, finished, which I think is somewhat un untenable. Uh, in addition to those points, though, uh, to the point of 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which is the verse that talks about eternal destruction, also to point out, eternal destruction, as far as I'm aware, correct me if I'm wrong, that phrase is used once in scripture, same for eternal punishment. This is not the center of the debate insofar as it's mentioned over and over. Each one is a one-off use. But in any case, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, if you read the context of that verse says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, or in some translations, from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Uh, we get an explanation of what that eternal destruction is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, the next chapter. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed and whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. And so if we're going to insist that 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 is referring to the end of days, then we would also have to insist that it means what the next chapter says, which is bringing to nothing by the breath of the Lord Jesus' mouth when he kills you. Uh, however, I don't think that's the proper reading at all. I would love it if it were, because it would support my reading. <laughs> but if you read a little earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about the man of lawlessness taking a seat in the temple of God. I think this is referring to the temple destruction in 70 AD, not to the eternal state. But if we want it to mean the eternal state, much better for annihilationists in any event. Uh, moving on from that, my debate partner talked about um, this argument that 
the nature of the punishment is eternal. Or, sorry, he said that my argument is essentially is that the punishment and that hell are somehow different from one another, that one's eternal and the other isn't. That's not my argument. My argument is that just like the Essenes meant when they said eternal punishment, they meant a punishment that is eternal. That is the death sentence. You are not getting back up from it. You are eternally destroyed. You have been given the death sentence and you will never experience life again. You're not going to be resurrected. You're not coming back. It's eternal in that sense. I agree with him that eternal means permanent, but it's the effect of the punishment, not the experience of the punishment itself, which again, I read that consistently with other uses of Ionios modifying a verbal noun in the New Testament. Um, in addition, he mentioned that all eschatology must be physical under that view. I disagree. I am a dualist, not a physicalist, which means I believe in a separate body and soul of man. I think the body, when it's killed, dies. And I think the soul, when it's killed, also dies. If we know what a dead human and a dead animal and even a dead battery means, I assume we know what a dead soul means. It is a soul that is not animate, not living, not conscious. A dead battery is a soul is a battery that no longer is animate, no longer is able to do anything. It can't weep, it can't gnash teeth. Those are things that happen when you are thrown into the lake of fire, but it doesn't mean that those events take place forever. It says nowhere in scripture that that itself goes on forever and ever. Uh, my debate partner talked about Re Revelation 2010, which is a really big verse on the subject, I will agree. Uh, it says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want to point out here, much like much of Revelation, this is prophetic imagery. A literal reading is very untenable because, for one, uh, it talks about day and night, and we know from later in Revelation there is no day and night. And second, <laughs> it says that in four verses later, in 2014, the lake of fire is the second death. And so we know very clearly that it seems at least that John is describing the meaning of the image. It's very common in prophetic literature for there to be a symbol and there to be a real interpretation of the symbol. And here this eternal fire symbolizes the second death, the death of soul and body that Jesus told us about. Um, moreover, I think it's helpful to do a head count of what's in the fire. Uh, the devil is there suffering forever in John's image, but Hebrews 2.14 says the devil is destroyed through death. The beast is there suffering forever, but my debate partner helpfully pointed out Daniel 12. In Daniel 7, it tells that the beast is killed and destroyed and its corpse is thrown into a river of fire. Death is thrown into the lake of fire, but a few verses later, like my debate partner said, uh, it says death shall be no more. So my debate partner agrees with me that the things that go into the state, the, this lake of fire, at the very least death, it signifies the cessation of those things, not the eternal state, even if it describes symbolically eternal suffering, just like it did with Edom in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> in any event, I think that view is supported, again, by where it says four verses later, this is the second death, the lake of fire. Uh, Moving on, my debate partner talked about Ignatius and Irenaeus and a few other church fathers. I didn't get all of them. My point is not that every early church father before Augustine supported annihilationism, but my point is that many of them seem to have, specifically on the ones that I caught, Ignatius and Irenaeus. Let me pull up the quote one moment. It says, uh, here it is. Ignatius says, uh, for were he to reward us according to our works, we would cease to be, in his letter to the Magnesians. And then Irenaeus says, and this is part of a larger quote uh, in Against Heresies, it says, um, those shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. Um, and that uh, in as much as he has been created and has not recognized him who has bestowed the gift upon him of life, 
deprives himself of the privilege of continuance forever and ever. And so Irenaeus and Ignatius seems to, seem to think that we could in fact cease to be and that we should and can be deprived of length of days forever and ever. That is the context with which I mean they're uh, annihilationist. And it's commonly confused because they'll have quotes that'll say things like eternal destruction, eternal punishment, much like the Essenes did. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're annihilate or that they're ECT proponents just because they quote the Bible in ways that have been backwards interpreted to mean ECT. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you, Brad, for that rebuttal. Um, Jordan, you're going to have about 10 minutes to do your rebuttal as well. I'm going to take off the time that was gone over on the previous section. Um, <clears throat> so whenever you are ready, you may begin. Right. Uh, I, would, I, I think that uh, Brad has done an excellent job of really solidifying his case in, in this context. He mentioned a lot of the things that I said and uh, in, in all fairness brought up several points in which they, they could be interpreted in, in a very different context. I do think uh, to address some of the more specific scriptural uh, arguments that were made, because there is there is a lot, and I think that that's, where, that's most the, the field of this particular debate has to be uh, in the context of interpretation of scripture. Um, you are correct that there are many uh, individual, individuals and sects in the early church and in the uh, even it, before Christ, that believed in, I would not call it annihilationism, but certainly not eternal conscious torment. Um, however, many of the times, those individuals, specifically, if you want to talk about the Sadducees, uh, they were undermined specifically by the teachings of Christ, that there was, in fact, a resurrection, and that all, all people will be judged. And so by that nature, their view was already fairly erroneous, theologically speaking, and that was confirmed by Christ himself. Um, and if you want to pick any other authority figures who may have undermined that, you most certainly can. But um, I believe Christ has the ultimate authority on the subject, and I'm going to yield to him. Um, moreover, to the point, too, that you kind of talked about the linguistics uh, of certain verses. Uh, Aeonion, um, you mentioned that there are several contexts in which it refers to time, and I would disagree with that. I don't believe that that word Aeonion is ever actually used to refer to anything as far as I know in scripture, that refers to anything other than uh, things which are eternal or everlasting in nature uh, and no way temporal. Now, aeon, the root word, uh, is used several times, and to equate those two is a very shoddy, uh, a, a very shoddy translation job, in my opinion. For example, just because something has the same root word does not mean it has the same definition. We in English have the word testify and the word testicles, and those two words have vastly different meanings, but they have the same root word. And so I would argue that uh, you can't really justify that everything that shares the same root is going to have the same, uh, the same meaning. Uh, and even I would say that they could have vastly different meanings given the context that they're used in, and this is one of those cases. And so in that regard, it is everlasting, e eternal. Uh, my point earlier when I talked about that you would really have to separate uh, several of those things, um, that that leads more on the fact that in order to come to the conclusion that death is eternal, that's fine if what we're referring to is specifically death, the cessation of existence. But we understand very clearly that scripture indicates that that is not the only, that that is not, if, if you're an annihilationist, that is not the only thing that happens. And if you are uh, in the camp of the ECT, you would have to say that that is, there is only one thing that happens, which is there is this um, punitive event that occurs, the singular punitive permanent event that occurs. Uh, and 
there is no change in the subject of that punitive event. And so one would argue, especially if you were wanting to uh, argue that there is, um, you know, there is the torment, but then there is also the ending of that. There is an ending to that torment. You would almost have to argue that there are multiple things that occur um, and no such indicate there's, there is no such indication in scripture. There is a finite, there is a singular event that occurs. I wouldn't say it's finite. There's a singular event that occurs. It's actually the opposite of finite. Um, there's a singular event that occurs and that singular event is what is in question here. Is there death as the Sadducees would argue that you just cease to exist or is there a punishment which is eternal? Now, there was one issue that we really did not get into, and that was more of the, uh, the philosophical debate. And I think that the philosophical debate is also very interesting here. Um, I would be interested to hear what, and I'll probably get into this on cross, but um, I'd be interested to hear what my opponent's views are um, as far as the uh, nature of uh, why annihilationism would be the quote unquote, philosophically correct view of how God would handle sin. Um, I personally have problems with it from a philosophical perspective in the aspect that if God is eternal and infinitely holy, then uh, the repercussions for that would need to be eternal and uh, infinite as well. And so I, I don't think that it's entirely fair if, and it, it may be easier if we believe that sin is, sin is um, meant to be punished um, based on the level of our sin, but we're not weighted on the measure of our sin, but on the measure of God's holiness. Um, that is both how we are saved and how we are punished. And so the punishment would have to fit, in this case, the crime, which is violating an infinitely holy God. Um, a, a blip on the radar of eternity in torment would really not suffice. And so in that regard, it is an insufficient view of God's judgment, uh, in my opinion. Um, as far as addressing the church fathers for just a moment, because I'm going to go back to Ignatius and Arrhenius for just a moment, because uh, there's a quote from Arrhenius, also in Against Heresies, in case you're wondering, um, in which he specifically says, and this is why I believe he was he was ECT, um, in that, uh, give me just one moment here. Uh, he says, and he's when he's talking about Moses uh, and a few others as well, he says, uh, by these things, then, it is plainly declared that souls continue to exist, that they do not pass from body to body, that they possess the form of a man so that they may be recognized and retain the memories of things in this world. Moreover, that the gift of prophecy was possessed by Abraham, which is who he was referring to. Uh, and then each class of souls receives a habitation such as it has deserved even before the judgment. Now, I, I, I think it's at least notable that I'm obviously not completely on board with all of Arrhenius's views on eschatology, but Arrhenius certainly believed that the soul was eternal uh, and that it did not have an end. And so in that regard, I do believe that it's fairly clear Arrhenius was, uh, was in the camp of, of ECT. Um, I do believe that uh, Ignatius also um, was in the in the realm of ect there are a few quotes that you could pull um in his letter to the ephesians uh as as well as a few other spots um here and there where he definitely seems to indicate um that hell was eternal um 
there's like specifically to the Ephesians, I think there's a couple of spots. Um, but ultimately, I mean, you, you could put it six, six one way, half a dozen the other on what Ignatius really was. And to be fair, Ignatius was uh, one of the earliest of the church fathers that we have uh, you know, records of. So this is, you know, it can get, get kind of dicey. I guess my point in bringing all of that up, though, is that by the time we got to Augustine, and you're right, Augustine did make it cool, as you, if you want to quote, quote it that way. Uh, Augustine did make the view of ECT cool, but there was rel relatively little pushback on that particular perspective because for so many years and for so many centuries, it was really the traditionally held view. Um, there's very little that would indicate, especially, um, I would say, there's very little that is conclusive on the view of annihilationism in the early church fathers. And so with that regard, it makes it very difficult to say that this was a predominant view or even if it, if, that it was a largely held view, but that there are some who might not completely disagree with it uh, or define it as heresy. Uh, I think there's a big difference between not defining something as heresy and agreeing with it, but that's my, my only view on the subject. And I yield my time. All right, so that wraps up the opening and the rebuttal statements. We're going to move into the cross-examination time. Brad, you're going to have 10 minutes to cross-examine Jordan, in which, Jordan, you're going to be asked to answer um, directly and honestly the questions that Brad poses, and then the reverse will happen for another 10 minutes. Um, are you guys both ready for the cross-examination portion of this? Okay, um, and everyone's on the same page as to what that entails? Okay. Um, Brad, you may begin your cross-examination now. Thanks, Chase. Uh, Jordan, my first question, just to clarify this, if a person is deprived life forever and ever, that is, they do they stop living and they never come back, they are forever dead. Would you agree with me that that punishment, would you say that that punishment is temporary or, or, or eternal? Do you think that they eventually get that? I believe life? that it is eternal. I believe that it does not end. And I do believe that um, to the point of your question, because I do believe this is where you're going, and I think you'll appreciate that I agree with this. Um, I do believe that the nature, there is a certain element which these words are used that indicate the nature of these punishments is eternal um, and that they last forever. And I think that there's a certain element of that in scripture that's seen pretty clearly. Thank you. Do you affirm the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? And just for our audience, penal substitutionary atonement is this idea that you and I deserve the punishments, but Christ took our punishment to satisfy the justice of God. Do you think that's true? You know, that is a really good question, and I've gone back and forth on that particular subject for a while. I think your your expectation was for me to immediately say yes. Um, it, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, because I think that that's, those were big words that were applied to a fairly deep theology. Uh, big, that's totally deep, fair. Deep, if you don't mind, yeah, I'm, sorry to cut, I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, would you mind, for the purpose of, of arguments, to just apply a reading of someone who had that in case anyone in the audience did and recognize that my paper is making the point that that is not a reading that is clear from Scripture and he views it can go either way. But for the sake of argument, would you mind? Right. I can take on the perspective that it is a view that one could have and that it but it is not necessarily one that is. Um, yeah, I can take I can take on that as a perspective that one would have. OK, there we go. Okay, what was the punishment that Jesus he took? He took on the punishment for our sins. What happened? Well, he died. Okay, what punishment? Oh, we, we deserve death. Do you think we're going to get that? Uh, those of us who are in Christ, no. No, no but sorry. Those, those who, are who are not in Christ uh, will face that, yes. 
And do you think that Jesus died, died a literal, physical death that killed him, or do you think he was uh, sort of living no sort of life, like was eternally undergoing suffering? Yes. You think Jesus eternally suffered? Mm, okay. For the simplicity of this argument, I'll say no. <laughs> okay, thank you. Let's move on. Uh, the word eternal or ionios or ionion in the original Greek seems rather important to this debate. There are a lot of places in the New Testament when an event or a verbal noun is described as eternal, like eternal destruction, or actually, sorry, there aren't a lot. There are only five, uh, like eternal destruction, eternal salvation, and eternal judgment. But there are those few. So let's go through those. Hebrews 5.9 refers to eternal salvation. Do you think that Christ is saving eternally or that he saved once and you were eternally saved? Uh, I do believe that, I, I don't believe that the two are mutually exclusive if that makes sense. Um, Do you believe Christ's redemptive work is finished? When he says it is finished, was he referring to the, the task of redeeming mankind? Once again, for the simplicity of the argument, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> okay. Hebrews 6.2 refers to eternal judgment. Do you think God is judging for eternity or that he will judge once and that the lost are eternally judged as a result? Uh, I, believe that, I believe that he judges once and the, and the lost are eternally judged as a result. Hebrews 9.12 refers to eternal redemption. Do you think Christ is redeeming eternally? We've already kind of touched on this. Mm -hmm. Or that he redeemed once and that you are eternally redeemed as a result? I believe that he redeemed once and we are eternally redeemed as a result. And would you agree with me that Hebrews 9.12 uses the word uh, Ionia? Let me actually find it one moment. I don't want to lie to you. Ionian, which is the exact same phrase of the, or tense of the word as is used in eternal punishment and in eternal destruction. Oh. But it's used with the exact same uh, if you give me a second, I will. <laughs> I promise you it is. Okay. Let's move on. I don't want to waste my time. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Matthew 25, 46 says the lost go into eternal punishment. Would you say that God is eternally punishing or that God will punish once and they are eternally punished as a result? You read that really fast. Say that again. Sorry. Matthew 25, 46 says the lost go into mm -hmm. eternal punishment. Is God eternally punishing? Or does God punish once and they are eternally punished as a result? I don't think either of those options is a proper reading of that. I think that the punishment itself is what is already created as eternal. I believe God created the punishment to be eternal in nature. And so okay. they pass in, in this, okay, continue. In this case, the event of the punishment itself is eternal, not the result of the event. I, believe, I don't think you can separate those two. I think they're both eternal in nature. Sure, they could both be eternal in nature, but with eternal redemption, you said that only one of the two between the event and the result was eternal. You're saying here with punishment that both are eternal, so it's read differently despite the fact that it's the exact same. I don't, word I'm not trying to say that they're different. I, I do believe that there's a certain aspect to which, even when with Christ's redemption, there was an act in which he redeemed once for all, but he is still in the process of redeeming many of us. Um, I, and so in that case, the two, again, are not mutually exclusive. And in this case, too, there was a created eternal punishment. Um, and while the judgment may occur and that may be eternal, the punishment itself was created to be eternal. Okay. And you would have the same reading for eternal destruction, I assume. So you would yes. say, okay, so you would not say that you were destroyed once and you were eternally destroyed. It is an event that occurred and the result is permanent. That is not a reading you would have. Uh, not exclusively. Okay. Um, 
So would it, well, no, I'm not going to go there. I'll just move on. Um, <laughs> I want to save the time. Uh, understanding prophetic imagery seems pretty central to this debate, given that two of ECT's main passages are in Revelation. You mentioned Revelation 2010. Uh, for this purpose of this debate, I'm not going to respond to 1411 because you didn't say it, but we will definitely cover in discussion. So if you're curious about that, please stay after, but I'm not going to spend time on a point that wasn't made. Um, in any event, I'd like to take a moment to practice that skill. So I'll interpret a prophetic image in the Bible, and you tell me if I did it right. Does that sound okay? Sure. In Genesis 40, Joseph interprets the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer. There are three branches with grapes, and Joseph says the three branches are three days. Would it be correct to take that and say that every place in the Old Testament that uses the word day means not a literal day, but a branch. So the seven days of creation become the seven branches of creation because I know Genesis 40 says days are branches. Would that be correct? That is not a correct interpretation, no. <laughs> Thank you, I agree. I think that's silly. Uh, would it be more correct to say that the cupbearer saw a vision and the image in the vision symbolized a very real thing, that is three days? Yes. And in this case, I would argue that it's very important in the context of interpretation that you read that there was, in fact, a divine interpretation of the dream. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, in Revelation 19.8, it says that the bride of Christ was given white linen clothes, and the white linen stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So the white linen is the righteous act of God's people. Would it be correct to take that and say that every place in the New Testament that says a person was righteous meant not that they were literally righteous, but that they were wearing white clothes? Uh, no, again, that is not a correct interpretation. I agree with you. Would it be more correct to say that John saw a vision and that the image in the vision symbolized a very real thing, that is the righteous acts of God's people? That's a, that's a fair interpretation. Thank you. Uh, in Revelation 20, which you cited for saying that Satan and the false prophet and the beast would suffer forever, it says that God's throwing a bunch of beings and things into a lake of fire, separating them from him. God throws Satan and the false prophet and even a beast and even the abstract concept of death into a lake of fire. Now, I don't know how one throws the abstract concept of death, but in John's vision, God threw it into the lake of fire. It then goes on to say in Revelation 20:14, the lake of fire is the second death. Would it be equally ridiculous to the previous two examples for me to take that and say that every place in the New Testament that talks about death of the soul means not a literal death, but separation from God in a lake of fire? Uh, I think that that is, I don't, I can see why you would make this argument, but I, I have a hard time because I feel like this is putting the cart before the horse situation. I do believe that when we're referring to the second death, uh, this lake of fire or this destruction that is referred to uh, I believe when he says this, this is the second death, um, we see this time and time again, this concept of judgment throughout the New Testament. Rather, in the, in the reverse case where you were saying there was an instance where this happened and we can't universally apply it, there is a universal application of something and we are trying to, you're basically uno reverse card, instead of the universal application not being applied here, you're trying to say, well, because there was one interpretation of this universal application. We can't flip it around. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I, I'm unaware of any other verse that, that specifically says that death is a lake of fire. Uh, but my point is actually that if, if one of these two things is an interpretation, one is the symbol, it seems to me the symbol John's seeing is a lake of fire. He's not seeing death. And the prophetic interpretation given by scripture is that it is the second death, the death of soul and body and hell that Jesus talks about. Uh, am I correct in saying that you think that's an incorrect reading? Uh, I would, yeah. I would, hmm. For the sake of this argument, yes. Do you believe that evil will exist forever or will God will eventually rid creation of evil? I believe that uh, God will eventually purge all evil. 
I concede my time. Thanks. All right. Very nice time management. Um, I think we got the technical error taken care of. So, Jordan, are you prepared for your cross-examination time? Uh, as prepared as one can be against Brad Hinkleman. <laughs> I know. I mean, you are going up against the teacher of the law, I so am. they're pretty good with words. You know I can't be true. <laughs> man, I, I've been taking notes because I have some rebuttal points that I want to bring up in the discussion oh, man, section. Okay. Um, okay. All right, Jordan, are you ready? Sure. All right. Your time begins now. All right. Uh, Brad, you've made some really excellent points, and so I, I don't want to spend too long on, on beating dead horses because I think we could easily get into some of that. Um, I, I do want to, for a moment, ask you a few questions about the philosophical nature of your argument. What is your particular, let me, let me rephrase the question because you're a lawyer. Um, would you say that the philosoph your philosophical argument uh, is that God would not cause people to suffer eternally because that is unjust? That's an interesting point. Uh, no, that is not my, my arguments. I haven't mentioned that argument once, though you have countered it nevertheless. Um, my perspective, if we're going to talk about that, is that when someone describes something God is going to do, I think it is pertinent to consider what we know of God's nature. And to me, it would be surprising with everything I know about God if he would punish a temporal sin with an eternal punishment, because that does that seems at face value to violate the principle of an eye for an eye. Having said that, if God chose to do that, okay. and he told me um, he was going to do that, then absolutely. I and so I won't spend too much longer on that, because it seems that we're pretty well on board that God will do what he wants as far as judgment goes. Um, so we'll move on from that. Um, would you contend that it was the predominant, I'm not going to say it was exclu the exclusive view of the early church, but you would say it's the predominant view of at least the first three centuries of the early church? ECT, specifically. That's an interesting question. Uh, for the first two, it seems to be pretty split as it was in, in any point in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, I think that what happens a lot of time with ECT is that people will see a phrase like eternal punishment or eternal destruction or anything like that, and they'll assume that it means what ECT proponents believe rather than meaning that they're eternally destroyed as in non-existent or eternally punished as if they're not coming back from it. Uh, and so, no, I, I would not concede that. I would say it was pretty well- Would you contend then the that when uh, Augustine tries his best to lead the establishment of that as an orthodox view, that there was very little contention over that? I'm not aware of any contention. Having said that, by that point, I believe we were already killing heretics. So I uh, would not be one. I mean, perhaps I would if I was, especially in view That's of fair. the courage. I will, I will contend that point as well. Um, I, I guess my point in bringing all that up is just simply to say that the earlier fathers probably had the closest view to the original interpretation of what was taught. Um, would you would you say that that's probably a safe argument to make that the closer we get to those original the original audience um, the viewpoints are probably more likely to reflect the original intent of what was transmitted? Yes, I would go one step further than that. I would even say that up to 200 AD, it seems the text is taken very much at face value, and after that, not so. Not just on this issue, you start seeing. Other issues that I disagree with that I don't want to get into that start getting a little bit less okay. uh, Protestant seeing. Yeah, I think, I think it's so before, um, I totally agree with you. Uh, what do you believe 
and this is more of a question of curiosity, what do you believe has led annihilationism to become other than other than obviously why do you believe it was not established as a as an orthodox view initially well if you mean initially i, I just i'll ask uh, i'm going to say so, you mean i mean you could use either but i mean i'm talking about post augustine why did it become the uh, orthodox why did uh, why did annihilationism not become the orthodox I think that for the purpose of uh, spreading the faith, it's more useful to threaten people with eternal punishment as in, in the sense of them punishing without end than it is to say that they'll stop existing. I think some people are nihilistic and hedonistic enough to say that being deprived of life is fine with them okay. because at least- um, Would you contend that, that the nature, let, let, let's get into the nature of sin for just a moment um, because I do believe it has some some bearing on this. For what reason, are people cast into hell? Okay. Um, what is sin? They've sinned. Okay. Sin Can we agree then that sin is, is a violation of God's holiness? How holy is God? Absolutely. 100%. Would, you, would it be safe to say that God 100%. is infinitely holy? Okay. Um, are sure. Yeah. To the extent there's no, I, I can't way. put a metric on it, so we, we can't say that for sure. But yeah. Terms, but right. Sure. Uh, as much would you as say that in the grand scheme of things, then, uh, our temporal sins <laughs> are minute by comparison to the holiness of God? Okay. Uh, so then, would the punishment for oh, sin be based that. on the depth of our sin or how great our evil was? Or more specifically, would it be based on the violation of God's infinite holiness? Yeah. Uh, real quick before I answer that, am I understanding your point uh, correctly? That we're not there yet, but we're getting there. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm more specifically asking the question that... Um, is okay. our sin, is the violation of our sin based on how badly we did or like the, the level of evil we committed or the level of goodness and holiness we violated when we profane God? I think it's both. I think that the Old Testament gives us a great vision into God's idea of justice when he gives the image of an eye for an eye. That if you Would you agree, though, that the original law was written of, of to sustain what was between people to some extent, but also was is also a part of the law was established to understand and establish the holiness of God? Yes, it's certainly both, and that's my point. Is that it's a good lens into into God's ideas of justice because there were lots. Would of you agree then, though, the that the God law that is issued sacrifice in in the Torah uh, puts much more emphasis on not violating the holiness of God and much less emphasis on violating one another? Yeah. 
I think it's. Would you, would you say though that the violation, the, that the reason for not violating the law is less because I don't want to upset the person next to me, and more because I want to, I want to abstain from violating the holiness of God. Uh, yes, but I would also argue. I think that that's that, that's a fair point of the law. Of um, my, I guess, ultimately, what I'm getting to is what is the more pressing aspect of sin? What truly, what truly is the nature of sin? Is it simply making a mistake, or is it violating God's holiness? Okay. If, mm -hmm, uh, like I said, a lawyer. stepping out. Of um, I know that's fair. Um, I. I, I I'm suppose not then, to be, I'm just trying I, to be if consistent. it can't, it, it would need to be, it would need to be one of those. Um, either we're we're judged on the standard of how good we were based on everybody else, and mankind is the standard, or God's holiness is the standard. Which would you say is okay? Oh, certainly God's holiness is is the standard. I'm just saying that how we behave towards one another is a part of our reaction to God's holiness. Would you that agree then that God God's, that given to us as God's punishment towards sin should not be based on mankind's, the, the, the totality of mankind's goodness or, or evil, but rather it should be based on the principle and against the metric of God's holiness? I think all of God's law is the latter. Yes. And I think that we should be um, consistent. So you're saying then, the just to confirm, that you believe that the punishment for our sin should be based against and should be measured against the holiness of God. Uh, more or less, I just want to also point out that, you know, we understand this intuitively, that if I steal a dollar from a homeless person versus a dollar from Bill Gates, I don't deserve a bigger punishment for doing it against Bill Gates, even though he's worth more dollars. In the same way, I don't think that doing a sin against a sinful person versus a sin against an eternal person has a different idea in God's mind. Mm -hmm. In fact, the argument you're making is Anselm's argument, Curdius Homo from 1095 AD, first raised by a Catholic priest a thousand years after the fact. It's neat philosophy, but well, I do um, think that the, 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 the scriptures this for, particular for, argument is for these ideas. in the context that I'm not saying that oh, it's better, it's fine if you hurt somebody else. It's basically insignificant. But it's it, the reason that it is a violation is not that it's a violation of that person, but rather that it is a violation of the holiness of God that is he's the creator. Yes, and I think that's why okay. people are given. And in that in that case, uh, would a an immediate death an immediate death um, justify do you, in your mind would an immediate death justify uh what was a violation against the full holiness of god do you believe that it is just that that a temporary death or an or a finite punishment is satisfactory to justify a violation of God's infinite holiness. Right. So in my view, a temporary punishment would not be. I think that an eternal punishment that is non-existence is warranted permanently. That is to say, I think the greatest punishment a person can be given is to be deprived of eternal life, to be taken out of God's creation, to be cast away from God's presence permanently in their non-existence, more so than to merely have uh, some deprivation of pleasure. I think it's kind of hedonistic and nihilistic to say that it's better to have pleasure deprived than life deprived, which is why I think that the only just punishment that God could give would be to give someone the death sentence after what they've done.
Jordan, thank you for your cross-examination. That was a lot of really good information. Um, we're each going to have 10 minutes in order to make our closing statements. This time, Jordan is going to lead the closing statements, and then Brad is going to have the last closing statement, and that'll wrap up the official debate. Um, Jordan, are you ready for your um, uh, closing argument? Sure. Um, whenever I, whenever your time is up, I'm going to let you know that time is up. You're going to be able to finish the current sentence that you're on, and then that's it. Okay. So. Um, whenever you are ready, you may begin. All right. Uh, I think my opponent has brought up several really great points that point to the fact that annihilationism is uh, and could be a, a legitimate view and interpretation of scripture. Uh, however, I do believe uh, that uh, there has, there really is nothing that would conclusively point somebody to the belief that annihilation, alienate, and annihilationism. Uh, is what must be taken away from Scripture or that it should be taken as the predominant interpretation of Scripture. Uh, there really is uh, nothing, whether that be historically, linguistically, or scripturally, which would indicate finitely and concretely that this must be the interpretation we take of eternity. Um, adversely, I believe that there are, and I will not claim that my arguments are by any means conclusive as above. I believe that there is no certain way that we could ever have this debate if either side was con entirely conclusive. But I do believe that there is quite a bit more uh, substantial evidence to point to the idea that the original interpretation of what was meant in these sayings about hell and these teachings about eternity and eternal destruction, eternal punishment, uh, is that they do indicate that there was an idea of something that was meant to be eternal, as eternal as our eternal life. And while our eternal life is not, as, as we would hope, uh, some temporary thing, uh, eternal destruction and eternal wrath uh, is something that would last forever. And in many ways, from a philosophical perspective, would necessarily have to be uh, eternal in nature and everlasting. Um, I do believe that uh, while there may be some other interpretations which you could take to certain scriptures, if you began at this viewpoint and you uh, simply went into scripture and allowed that to uh, filter your view of, view of scripture, you could come to those conclusions. But uh, hermeneutically speaking, if we were to take the original context as best we can to understand these things, uh, there really was no clear indication that the original uh, viewpoint of this was taken as annihilationism or was ever interpreted or intended to be interpreted specifically that way. Uh, there are certainly ideas that lend themselves to uh, perhaps even our more uh, Western view of thinking that something would be destroyed uh, or annihilated or have a cessation of existence. Um, and we base that, I believe, a lot on a material ontology, the idea that things must have some kind of the material, uh, you know, conclusion, um, whether that be that we are in heaven or whether that be that we cease to exist. Uh, I do believe that, um, as I pointed out, many of the early church fathers and the closer we get to uh, the origins of, I'm not going to reference origin, although I do believe he, he kind of fell into that boat as well, um, but the origins of, of the early church fathers and their beliefs tended to lean towards uh, the idea of eternal conscious torment and that whatever references might be taken or might be translated to allude to annihilationism are merely speculative or uh, perhaps um, just maybe even misinterpreted at worst. Um, and that those really 
are again inconclusive to indicating that that's the original interpretation and moreover that many of the specifics of the early church fathers and what they taught indicated the idea of eternal conscious torment um, i will yield my time to brad all right thank you jordan for that closing statement brad are you prepared for your closing statement yes i am all right you can begin and whenever you're ready thanks chase from genesis to revelation scripture teaches that the unsaved will be destroyed not figuratively destroyed or symbolically destroyed, but that we should fear him who is able to kill our soul and body in hell. To close, I'd like to go through a small subset of what the Bible has to tell us about the fate of the lost. Starting in Genesis, God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. He warned him that if he sinned, he would surely die. God gave him the Tree of Life, which conditionally preserved Adam's life. And this Tree of Life appears back in Revelation 22 only to be given to those who are saved, who also have their lives preserved. When Adam sinned, he was cast out, and he lost the one thing that would keep him from perishing, not eternally suffering, but perishing. In Psalms, we're taught that the wicked will be like chaff that the wind drives away, like a broken pot, like smoke that vanishes, like a stillborn child, like a snail that dissolves into slime, like wax that melts before fire, and like a dream when one awakens. It's my position that we're given that language for a reason. In the prophets, we're taught that the wicked will be burned to lime like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. We're taught that not a root or a branch will be left of them, but they will be ashes on the day the Lord acts. We're taught that the corpses of the dead will be in hell. We're given chilling prophetic imagery like eternal fire, undying worms, and eternal smoke to communicate the extent to which places like Sodom, Gomorrah, and Edom were destroyed. And I want to make this point especially clear. There is no argument that the eternal fire and the eternal smoke were not initially, initially used to describe the utterness of the destruction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Edom. That was their initial use, and my position is that we should read following uses of those images consistently with the rest of Scripture. Uh, in addition, with the undying worms, that use was, a was initially used to apply to dead bodies in the very same verse, verse in Isaiah's writings. Uh, <clears throat> when Peter, Jude, Luke, G John, and Jesus quote this language, they're telling us that God is going to do to the lost what he did to those places in the Old Testament. He's going to utterly destroy them. We're given the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, or Gehenna, which is later depicted as a lake of fire in Revelation. This is a place that will be called the Valley of Slaughter by Jeremiah, because there will be so many dead bodies there, not animate living people, but dead bodies, that there won't be room to bury anymore. In the New Testament, we're given the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I think this is a good time to, to point out here. We're talking a little bit and in sort of a cavalier way about very serious things. And for that, I want to apologize. But the reason is it's just the fast-paced nature of debate. It's very difficult to give these things the time they deserve. So if you're listening and you aren't on the eternal life side of this equation, I just want to make it abundantly clear that neither one of us has argued that the end is going to be pleasant for those who are lost. The end is either eternal conscious torment or you are thrown into a lake of fire made by God himself to cause weeping and gnashing of teeth, after which you are killed, both your soul and body, and we don't know how long that takes. In either case, I strongly would encourage anyone listening to take the offer of eternal life rather than the alternative, which is not something I would like to see happen to anyone. We're taught that Christ was given as a propitiation for our sins and that he took our punishment. That is, he died a terrible death on the cross when we deserved a terrible death in a lake of fire. Christ did not spend an eternity on the cross. 
We're taught that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're taught that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That is, not everyone is getting eternal life. For those who take the wide gate leading to destruction, we're taught that they will undergo the second death, the death of soul and body in hell, and that they will be condemned to extinction and ashes, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. After the unsaved are destroyed in the lake of fire, we're taught that even death itself will be destroyed, and the saved will live on in eternal life. What I've told you so far is from the scriptures. And I want to actually back up for a moment. My debate partner earlier mentioned that it causes a problem if death is destroyed in the fire. I find that actually the reverse happens for ECT, because if death were destroyed in the fire, then how do they continue to undergo the second death? They would Death has to be alive for them to continue dying. And beyond that, death being destroyed would indicate that things go in, going into the lake of fire are destroyed. You would be agreeing with me that the meaning of the death lake of fire is that a thing goes in and it stops existing just as death did. But in any case, what I've told you so far is from the scriptures. As long as you affirm the inerrancy of scripture, you cannot contend that the imagery used to defend ECT was not originally used to describe the destruction of places that were actually destroyed. You don't get to argue that the wicked are not destroyed or consumed, or that they don't perish, that they don't die the second death, or that they're not reduced to ashes, or that they're not condemned to extinction. Instead, you have to argue that all of that is for some reason figurative. It's your decision whether you decide to take all of this at face value, at least 264 verses from Genesis to Revelation, or whether you instead read around all of it and take two passages in Revelation as literal, only one of which we discussed today. I'm not the only one saying this. Preston Sprinkle, a supporter of the traditional view and co-author of Erasing Hell, said something very similar to this. He admitted that the majority of the Bible is suggestive of annihilationism, and only three passages in his view are suggestive of the traditional view. That is Matthew 25, 46, which talks about eternal punishment, Revelation 14, 11, and Revelation 20, 10. As demonstrated today, those passages do not provide a solid foundation for ECT, and as it so happens, this guy who literally wrote the book on ECT has now publicly stated that he is not sure which way he leans. In fact, he says he has more arguments for annihilationism than for the traditional view. He has come out and said that he no longer feels confident about ECT. The traditional view is not consistent with God's word. It tells you that Plato's view of an immortal soul should be accepted instead of Genesis's view of a soul that can only survive by God's provision. It tells you that when Jesus or the prophet John quote from the Old Testament, that the best understanding can be had by ignoring the connection to the passage that's quoted. It tells you that when Peter or Jude or Luke or John or even Jesus Christ himself use events like Sodom, Gomorrah, Edom, and the flood as examples of hell, either by quoting or by outright saying that they are examples, that those examples shouldn't be taken as real examples, even if one of them, Peter, says it's an example of what will happen to the ungodly because they were reduced to ashes and condemned to extinction. ECT correctly tells you that eternal salvation and eternal judgment and eternal redemption refer to a finite event that causes an eternal result, but it incorrectly insists that eternal punishment and eternal destruction refer to an eternal event rather than an eternal result. That is, they would agree that Christ's redemptive process, most people would agree that that is finished, and yet the result of us being eternally redeemed takes place, but they would not agree that the destruction will take place in a time and you will be eternally destroyed as a result. 
ECT tells you that when the Bible talks about death, destruction, perishing, and consuming, that all of that needs to be taken figuratively. But when the Bible gives you prophetic imagery, that should be taken with strict literalism, which to me flips on its head the normal way that we would interpret these passages. It tells us that death refers not to the loss of life, but to a poor quality of eternal life. In that view, it tells you that death is not actually defeated in the end, but that death will reign for eternity in hell over most of the people that God has created. It will go on and on, and death will never be no more, for the second death will last forever, according to ECT. It tells that the wages of sin is, is eternal torment, rather, and that Adam was in the Garden of Eden with the tree of not being separated from God rather than the tree of life. It tells that God doesn't take an eye for an eye, but he takes an infinite number of eyes for an eye. That God finds it just to punish a temporal sin with infinite, unending torture. And it justifies this argument with an argument that wasn't made until a thousand years after the fact by a Catholic priest who was practicing some philosophy. It tells you that the God of justice and mercy will call his creation good while he spends all of eternity torturing the majority of people in his existence. For me, the textual case is clear. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't expect to have convinced you today, but I know that many of you listening will go on to continue reading your Bible regularly. Almost every day, you're going to see a verse that talks about the unsaved perishing, or the gift of eternal life, or the second death. There's 264 of them, so it'll come up a lot. And it's my hope that each time that happens, you'll think of all of this. Whatever view you ultimately come to, let the voice of scripture, and not the voice of the majority, or the voice of sentimentality, guide you. I've got about 40 seconds left, so I want to take another moment to thank Jordan again for speaking with me on this. There are countless brilliant brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides of this debate who have forgotten more about this than I can ever hope to learn, and I count Jordan among them. As Jordan said, this is not an issue that is perfectly clear. This is one where there is room for disagreement on both sides, and I would affirm that. Uh, though I spoke somewhat harshly about the traditional view of time, view of the by the traditional view at times, I wanted to be known that I spent the majority of my walk so far living under that view, and I have nothing but love and respect for my brothers and sisters who see this issue differently. To all the annihilationists and traditionalists and even universalists listening, I pray that God blesses you and your studies wherever they may lead. Thank you. I can see the remainder of my time. If I have any, I think I'm like five seconds over. Nope, you finished three seconds under. Oh, let's go. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thank you both for your time, your research, and your efforts put into this. I think that this was a really fruitful discussion and debate. And I think we're going to follow this up with a discussion, just kind of more of a roundtable, open-air discussion about the stuff that was talked about today. Yes, just one comment. For anyone listening who has some questions specifically about Revelation 14.11, uh, because I think that is legitimately one of the strongest arguments for the other side, and we didn't really talk about it a lot. I just want to flag that if you want to hear about that, please come back for mm -hmm. the discussion, because I'm sure both Jordan and I will have some thoughts on that. So for everyone who tuned in and was able to stay through the entire thing, um, no matter how many sessions it took for you to listen through that hour and a half long session or whatever it may have ended up being, uh, thank you for your time. And I really hope that this helps inform some of your studies and that you do take this opportunity to really go and pursue the verses that were presented, the ideas that were presented. There are some books, there are external resources that people have suggested. Actually take the time to go and read those. I find that reading things either within scripture or about scripture have always been personally informative to me. And even when I don't read things, perhaps especially when I don't when I don't agree with what I'm reading or hearing, 
that's going to serve to strengthen me because I'm going to have something to put my ideas up against and see what's going to be stronger. And we know that whatever the outcome, God's Holy Spirit and God's word are what's going to end up strongest. I don't think that you can ever throw two ideas at each other so hard that the truth of God ends up being the thing that's shattered. So I encourage you to continue in your studies. 